Well, good morning again, Lindsley Avenue. I appreciate the opportunity to be back with you, even if it's virtually this morning, and the time that we will spend together studying a portion of what God has to say to us. The topic I want us to discuss here for just a few minutes today is a very fundamental topic, very fundamental, and it's a topic that affects each and every one of us. In fact, it affects everyone who has ever lived or ever will live. The topic I've titled here is Our Problem and Our Only Hope. Our Problem and Our Only Hope. You know, we have all sorts of problems. It sure seems like 2020 is turning out to be a year of problems. I've seen all sorts of images about, well, if this is what's happened so far, the first half of the year, what on earth would the second half of the year look like? We have all sorts of problems. Part of our nature, part of our situation as humans, as people, is we like to try to fix those problems. We are problem solvers. We see a problem, we want to approach the problem and figure out a solution to it. The last thing we want is to have a problem that we can't fix. Sometimes solutions that we come up with in order to try to fix a problem are a little bit on the interesting side. For example, take a look. If you have a flat tire, all you really need is a roll of duct tape. And then you have, voila, flat tire no more. Not sure I want to drive on that tire in that car, but that is certainly a solution to a potential flat tire problem. Well, what if you don't have a regular sized flat uh, spare tire? What if your spare tire is not a regular size or you don't have one? You make do with any wheel any tire you can find. For all appearances, that looks as if someone has stolen a wheel off of a shopping cart and attached it to the back of that car as a spare tire. Uh, I'm not sure that's what the intention is here at all, but that sure looks like what has been done there. And there are always alternatives to getting your car air conditioning working once again. This time of the year, that's one of the last things you want to do without. So if your car air conditioning is not working, here is one solution to it. Now, if you look closely, that certainly appears to be a wall-mounted air conditioning unit mounted in the back window of that white van with power cords coming out of what used to be the window in the back, leading to, for all appearances, a gasoline power generator sitting behind the car, being carried along by the car. I suppose that is one way to have air conditioning in your car if the car air conditioning is not working, but I don't recommend any of those solutions to those problems. Problems may have an ingenious solution, but they're not always going to be good solutions. But we have a problem. We all have one basic problem a problem that is universal, a problem that all of us experience, and I would put to you that that problem is sin. Every person that's ever lived, with the exception of Jesus, but every person that's ever lived has sin as one of our basic problems. Sin is defined variously as missing the mark. In fact, it's a military term. You think about pulling an arrow and shooting toward a target, and the Arrow, as it's shot, does not get to the target. It has missed the target, missed the mark. So when we are guilty of sin, we have 
missed the mark. We have not hit the target of living the way we are supposed to be living. We have fallen short. Sin is also wrongdoing. Again, if the target is to do right and we don't hit the target, we would be guilty of doing wrong things, things that we should not be doing. Falling short, again, think of the idea of the arrow, not hitting the target. Going astray, a similar idea of you're supposed to be on this path, but you veer off from the path. Or alternatively, a transgression, going beyond. In that case, you could think of the arrow going beyond the target rather than falling short. It could be going beyond. Same thing, you're off target. And so our basic problem that we all have is that we are off target. Our lives are not on the target the way they are supposed to be. Sin is universal, and it's also a voluntary choice. The first time, notice this well, the first time each of us chose to live for ourselves, we chose sin. We all have made a choice of what we want to do and not what God would want us to do. When we did that of our own free will, we sinned because we fell short, we veered off the path we were supposed to go. We went beyond what we were supposed to do. We are guilty of sin. Now, that requires a certain self-awareness, a certain rational ability, where you're not going to be able to make that choice if you are a year and a half old. Telling a child, do not eat the cookie, really just strongly reinforces that there is a cookie there and the child will want to eat it. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who is old enough, whatever that really is, to know what responsible, correct, proper behavior involves and still choosing to do something else. A two-year-old cannot make that kind of choice. Certainly, by the time someone is 20 years old, they are in a situation where they can tell right from wrong, barring some sort of mental issues that stop someone from being able to make that kind of proper choice. For the overwhelming majority of people, there is no issue understanding what's involved in the decision. We simply chose to do what we wanted to do. And when we chose to do what we wanted to do, despite what we were being told by God, despite what the inner voice of our conscience was telling us, we chose to sin. Notice, too, that once we choose sin, this is a problem we have. We are now separated from God, and it is something we cannot fix on our own. Of all the problems that mankind may face, there are solutions, proper solutions, odd solutions. We saw pictures of those a couple of minutes ago, except for this one. This is a problem we cannot, cannot fix. There's nothing we can do to make it right. You cannot say, well, I'm going to visit a million sick people, or I'm going to feed 100,000 hungry people. I'm going to clothe every naked person on the face of the earth that will not fix the problem. Those are all good things to do, don't get me wrong, but they cannot and will never fix the problem we have of sin. It is something you and I cannot fix. Once we stepped off the path, once we crossed the line, 
Once the arrow fell short of where it was supposed to be, you cannot of our own accord do anything to get it back on target. Nothing. Absolutely nothing that we can do to solve this problem. Let's look at some passages from Scripture. Sin is, in fact, universal. Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul writes, None or no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, which is a very true statement. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. A few chapters later, a few verses later rather, Romans 3, 23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What a depressing statement. But it's true. Every single one of us chose what we wanted. We turned aside from what God wanted. We did what we wanted to do rather than what God wanted to do at least once. I'm sure most of us many, many more times than once. All it takes is one choice to live for ourselves and we have fallen short of the glory of God. It is a universal problem that we all face. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. It's really not so much talking about physical death here as the more important concept of spiritual death separation from God. As the body without the spirit is dead, you know, the real issue here is the body without the spirit in terms of being separated from God. Our spirit being separated from God has us in a death-like condition. We are dead in our sins. As Adam chose to sin, we all have chosen to sin, and death, separation from God, has passed on to all individuals, men and women. It's also a voluntary choice. You know, the, the TV show, the old days, the devil made me do it, or somebody else made me do it. We're always wanting to blame somebody else. No, we chose of our own free will to do something we knew we shouldn't do, and we did it anyway. James 1, 14 and 15. But every man, every woman is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust or desire and enticed. Then conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The idea there of enticed, sin looks good. The word there is actually the idea of a lure, when you were lured. When you think about fishing, you're not going to be able to catch a fish by putting a hook or putting, say, a cement block on a hook. It's got to be something the fish actually wants and desires, whether it's a squiggly worm, whether it's some kind of a shiny object, whether it's some sort of almost gummy-looking worm thing. It's got to be something the fish wants. The fish sees it and thinks, ooh, food, chomps on it. The moment that conceives, in this case the fish biting on the hook, that's what enticed means, the lure, the fish is caught. The fish is caught. I remember one time several years ago at uh, Boy Scout camp, the boys had an afternoon where they had some free time and they were fishing on the banks of the lake. And we were having a little contest, how many fish can you catch? Well, one boy 
just was blowing everybody else away because he kept catching a fish, catching a fish, catching a fish. It turns out he had a little secret. He had created a little cove around the corner, blocked it up with some mud, a little tiny little pond. He was catching the same fish over and over out of his little pond of water. No wonder he was catching it. The fish kept biting on the hook. Well, you might look and think, you know, that's kind of a foolish fish. How foolish can the fish be to keep biting on the hook over and over and over? Won't the fish ever learn that when you bite on that hook, you end up getting caught? Well, here's the real truth of the matter. You and I are that fish. You and I keep seeing the lure of sin, whatever sin happens to be appealing to you, whatever problem is most uh, of, of concern to you, whatever draws you most closely, we see that lure and we keep biting the hook. Over and over throughout our lives, we keep biting the hook despite knowing the last time I bought the hook, I got caught. Yank. Who's the real fish here? I am. I am. And the language here as well, when lust, desire has conceived, when it has generated action, it brings forth sin. The sin is not in the desire. The sin is acting on the desire in a way that God does not want us to. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The imagery here is of giving birth. Conception has occurred and the future birth is on the way and the future is going to be death. The future is going to be death. All brought about by our own actions. James 4.17 So whoever knows, to do the, knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In addition to things that we choose to do, sin is also prevalent and occurs when we have things we choose not to do. Think of passing by on the other side seeing someone that we can give help to and choosing not to provide it, not to provide it. The whole idea of rejoicing at someone else's predicament, feeling happy when somebody else is suffering, choosing not to step in and alleviate the suffering, it's sin when we know the right thing to do and choose not to do it. All of us are guilty one way or the other with Committing actions that are sinful, certainly all of us have done that. And so many of us also were guilty because we knew the right thing to do and we kind of just ignored the situation hoping that it would move on. It's sin. And it is a voluntary choice either way. We chose to do it. We've created a problem. And there is no fix for this problem. I can't fix it. I want to fix it. Surely, show me something I can do to fix it. Nothing I can possibly do can fix problem I brought on myself. I brought it on myself. Good news. We all have a problem, and there is only one hope of solving that problem. The only hope of solving that problem is grace. I've got my problem, sin. We all share that problem. We also share a hope. The only hope, the only possible solution to our problem, and that's grace. 
Grace can be thought of as unmerited favor, something done for you that's not because of merit or due to you. It's something that did not have to be done or given to you. A benefit given that is not deserved. A unilateral choice to bestow a gift. I choose to give you something not because of anything you did for me, and it was totally my decision. A unilateral choice to bestow a gift, a favor rendered by someone who does not need to do so. There's no obligation causing me to offer this to you. I want to offer this to you. Good things coming to you that you do not deserve. Grace. Similarly, in some ways, mercy is a, a kind of a similar idea. In fact, they often show up side by side in the text of the New Testament. Mercy has been defined as compassionate treatment, especially of those who are under one's power. I could choose to do this to you, but I'm going to show compassion. You're in my power to do one or the other, but I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to do good to you, compassionate treatment. Grace and mercy. In order to think about grace and mercy, our only hope of solving our problem, I want us to look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul begins this great chapter. He says, and you were dead. He's talking about me, and he's talking about you. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world. When we chose to do wrong, when we took that action and fell short, straight off the path, went beyond where we were supposed to be, we died because sin had entered our lives and separated us from God. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, how we lived. Our lives were day to day doing things we wanted to do which were, in this case, sinful. Among whom we all once lived. Notice, he's speaking to the people at Ephesus, but Paul is not excusing himself. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we act on desire, remember, James had talked about desire. When desire, lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. Desires are in us for a reason. My desire for food, hunger, causes me to not starve to death. A desire for companionship will keep me from being lonely. However, eating too much, looking for companionship in ways God has said no, lead to sin and lead to death. Notice what Paul said. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, among whom, among the world, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and by our very nature, the circumstances we were in from our own choices, we were children destined for wrath. God's wrath had us in the sights because we were living in sin, we were already dead, God was going to simply give us what we deserved, like the rest of mankind. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Look at verse 4. But God. 
I was dead. Nothing I could do. My problem would not go away but God. You know, I can't solve this problem. Nothing I can possibly do is going to get rid of this choice I made in the past. But. When I'm reading a passage, I always like to look for the word but. And when I see the word but, I want to back up and look before the word but showed up in the sentence or the passage and then look after the word but because the word but is a turning point. It is, in math, an inflection point. It is where the story or circumstance that's being discussed can change. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God. We did all this to ourselves. Nothing we could do to fix it. But God, what did God do? God is the only hope we would have. What did God do? What is God's action that's going to potentially change this circumstance I've gotten myself into? But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together in Christ. Look at a couple of thoughts in this statement. God is rich in mercy. Mercy being the compassionate treatment of someone in our control. And he's rich in mercy. God's mercy is never going to run out. Remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. They had only so much cash in the building and loan. They were worried the cash was going to run out. Instead of giving someone $1,000, could you only get by with a little bit because I only have so much cash. That's not the experience here with God. God is rich in mercy. God's mercy will never run out. Never run out. And he's rich in mercy with this great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in sins. When I was walking through my life as part of the natural world, having chosen for myself to do what I wanted to do, God still loved me, even though I'd already died because of my own choices. And then this great mercy, this great love that God had for us, God has made us alive together. But God has made us alive together with Christ. God is the only hope we have of not staying dead and not being dead forever. He then puts, and the translations put this in parentheses, by grace you were saved. These things that I have done separated me from God only through God's mercy and God's grace do I have any hope of ever being saved, of ever being forgiven from the things I chose to do ever going home to live with God. He has made us alive together with Christ and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God's rich in mercy and he's got exceeding riches of grace. It's never going to run out and it's actually free to everyone. By grace we have been saved. This unmerited favor, look at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. I need to believe the promise God has made, and I need to accept that promise. 
By grace you were saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If I can save myself by visiting a million sick people in the hospital, then it'll be like, all right, God, that was number one million. Let me in. I've earned it. But it's not anything I have earned. It is a gift of God. It is not related to works. It's not related to how I have fed people, clothed people, prayed with people. Uh, no, none of it, none of it. Look at Romans 4.4. 4. Now to the one who works, the reward is not considered a gift, but is something owed. Those of you that may still work for a living, as I do, when payday comes, I expect to see either a physical check or a deposit into my bank account. And if it doesn't show up, I tend to go in and say, hey, can we talk? I missed something in the bank deposit today. It's not a gift. I don't get that check and go, look at this. I was given money today. I had no idea the money was coming. What a wonderful gift. Thank you, boss, for this gift you have given me, even though I've worked all of last month. No, 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 no. When we work, when you work, you expect to get paid. When you are paid, it is not a gift. It is something that is owed to you. It is owed to you. And so if we work for the salvation that God is offering, it's not a gift. It's something owed to us. That is not, repeat, that is not the way salvation works for any of us. Look back to Ephesians 2, 9. This salvation, this uh, grace we are receiving is not from works lest anyone should boast. I can't say, look at me, look at me. I need to say, look at God, look at God. Titus 2, 11 through 15 starts off, and it makes an interesting statement. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What a wonderful thought. God's grace is going to bring salvation, and it's freely available to all. It has appeared to all, Paul would say in Romans, so that we are without excuse. But look what he says, this grace of God teaches us some things. The grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness, we need to live soberly and righteously in this present age. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God's grace expects a change in me. I can't keep going on sinning and choosing to live for myself. I need to start living for God. That old me was dead. I've been raised together to a new life, to walk in newness of life by the grace of God. And it needs to teach me. I have to learn how to start living for God instead of living for myself. Grace is what saves us, flat out. Acts 15, 11. Peter here is speaking at this conference in Jerusalem about those who were wanting to impose the law of Moses upon Gentile Christians. And look what he says in verse 11. We believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, Jewish Christians, he's talking about there, in the same manner as they, Gentile Christians. Only through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ do any of us have any hope of being saved. By grace we are saved through faith. Every one of us has a problem we cannot fix, one we freely created by our own free will, yet. Look at John 3.16. Verse we've heard probably most of our lives. 
For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world so much. Who's the world? It's me and it's you. God loved us so much that he gave. He didn't have to. He freely gave his his one and only son, his only begotten son, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish. God doesn't want us to stay dead. God doesn't want us to head toward an eternal death. He wants us to choose life. And he's offered his son and grace to enable us to do that. More directly, perhaps, God loved me so much that he gave his one and only son that I should not perish but have eternal life. I want to ask a favor of you. I know we're sitting at home. We're watching this potentially at different times. I want you to repeat John 3.16 out loud with me. But when it says he loved the world, I want you to put your own name in there. Understand what I mean? I want us to read what's showing on the screen. But I want us, instead of saying the world, to say your own name. You ready? For God loved Gene Wright so much that he gave his one and only son so that if Gene believes in him, Gene should not perish but have eternal life. If the rest of the world had never sinned, had never chosen to do what they wanted to do, if it had only been me, if I was the only one in all of history to have chosen to do what I wanted to do, to sin, to fall short, God loved me so much that he would have given Jesus just for me. Just for me. And he loves you so much that if you had been the only one to ever sin, he would have sent his son to die for you. That's the message of the cross. And that's the message of the grace that God has for each and every one of us. He loves the world. He loves every single person you see walking on the street. He loves every neighbor that you have, everyone you see in a store. He loves everyone so much and doesn't want any of them to perish. And that's why he sent his son, Jesus, so that they would not perish but would have eternal life. So grace, every one of us has a problem we cannot fix, one we created by our own free will, and yet God loved the world so much. God loved you so much and he loved me so much that he has a free gift and he's given a free gift for each one of us. Won't you come home to God today? If your life has not been the kind of life as a member of God's family that shows you have died to sin and are living for God, if you've been continuing to live for yourself instead of living for God, God doesn't care nearly as much what you did yesterday or last week as what you're going to do right now. God cares more about the choices you make from today to the end of our days than any choice we previously made. What does your life look like? What does my life look like? Does my life look like the kind of life somebody would be making decisions this way if I were living for God, or does it look like I'm still living in the world and living for myself? If your life's not right, Make it right today. Reach out to someone through Lindsley Avenue. Reach out to a minister or friend. Pray and God can forgive you easily 
if you choose to live for God instead of living for yourself. If you're not yet a member of God's family, today is the day. It's the only day you may have to die to yourself and be raised to live for God. The choice is yours. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Luke records more or less in passing that on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together in order to break bread, we were then told what they did at Troas. Troas, just a few miles distant from the famous site of Troy, the location of the Greek and Trojan War. The important part for us is that he said, when they gathered together in order to break bread, the disciples came together in order to partake of the Lord's Supper, in order to commune. We can't do that physically together just yet, but we can still gather together around the Lord's table as people are doing all over the world in order to remember the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ which was given for us. And so before we partake of that bread in order to remember, let's give thanks for the bread. And Father, we are so thankful this morning for the gift of your son, the sacrifice that he made, his life that he gave in order that we might live. And as we partake of this bread, we ask that you would help us to remember the sacrifice that he made for us that we would be thankful each and every day for the gift of life and the gift of love that came from your Son that you have given to us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. When those disciples gathered together in Troas in order to break bread, they were also partaking of the fruit of the vine. The supper to be remembered when his disciples gathered together bread, which represented his body, and fruit of the vine, which represented the blood that he would shed, the blood of the new covenant. That blood was shed for you and me on the cross. Without that blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. It is only through that blood that we should remember right now that we have any hope of ever going home to live with God. We need to examine our lives to make sure that we are living for God each and every day rather than living for ourselves. And so as we are about to partake of that fruit of the vine, we want to bless the cup. We want to give thanks for the cup so that we can, again, be so thankful for the gift that we have been given. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you again giving thanks for the cup giving thanks for the blood that Jesus shed on that cross for us. The blood that was innocent blood where he died so that we, even though guilty, might receive forgiveness and be able to come home and live with you. Father, we ask you would help us to examine ourselves, to examine our lives, and if needed, to refocus our lives this next week to live much more for you than we have. Again, Father, we are so thankful for the forgiveness that you have given through your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.